rarely a good sign when the preacher blanks on his opening prayer. That's not <laughs> portending well for what the sermon's going to be. Uh, getting back from the, the silly to the, to the more serious. Um, as we begin today, uh, I'll be continuing in my series on Jeremiah, which is uh, the book we heard the first reading from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And as I've been doing over the past weeks, continue today, and we'll do next week. And it's a very challenging book, and I'm going to give you some challenging stuff to handle today as well. But I really want to note uh, that gospel reading, though. I won't be really talking about it in my sermon so much, but that gospel reading is a precious reading from Luke 15 that I think many people hold on to. That's really where we get uh, the name of our church, the Good Shepherd, because it tells us about Jesus and what he is like. And about how it is that he is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep, and even when one sheep is dumb and wanders off, gets himself in a mess, doesn't know how to get back, inconveniences that shepherd a lot. Instead of the shepherd going out to find him and slaughtering him, the shepherd goes out, rejoices when he finds it, brings it on his shoulders because it's too weak to, to walk on its own, and brings him back into the fold and celebrates. And Jesus says that's what it is like when a sinner repents. So we know that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He tells his disciples, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we're talking about the harsh and difficult passage of the Old Testament, remember, we're talking about the very same God as Jesus is talking about. So if your idea in the Old Testament is God is just a really judgmental with no mercy and gentleness, you're wrong. Jesus gives us that picture and says that there are many aspects to how we understand God, and if you only get one of them, keep searching. Okay. So let's get into the nitty-gritty here about Jeremiah. The first point that I wanted to make, uh, and it's maybe the most challenging point that I wanted to make, is this. Is that Jeremiah and much of the prophetic tradition, much of the part of the Old Testament in general, has a real harshness that many of us, I think, really have a hard time with. Words of judgment and difficulty. But I'm going to suggest to you that one of the most important takeaways from our study of the Old Testament and the prophets in particular is to understand that people who are being oppressed and crushed by cruel power that they cannot defeat for themselves find comfort not just in a God who comforts them, but in a God who has the power and the strength to in fact destroy the systems of oppression that are oppressing them. And so my first point here I think I want to look at here in Jeremiah's passage is to say, look at the harshness of this language and don't put yourself simply in the shoes of modern middle-class people who live in relative comfort compared to the rest of the world, but put yourself as you're listening in the shoes of people who are broken and crushed and oppressed by a yoke that they cannot shake off. Listen to the words that Jeremiah says in chapter 4, which we heard read earlier in the service. This is how this passage begins. Verse 11, At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, A hot wind comes from me out of the bare heights in the desert toward my poor people, not to winnow or cleanse, but a wind too strong for that. It is I who speak in judgment against them. A little bit later on, he says some very harsh words. My people are foolish. They don't know me. They're stupid children. They have no understanding, skilled in doing evil, not how to do good. And then some really challenging language. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void. The heavens, they had no light. I looked on the mountains. They were quaking. The hills moved to and fro. And he ends this section, because of this, the earth will mourn, the heavens above grow black, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have relented, nor will I turn back. And you listen to that and you think, well, whose shoes do I stand in to actually make that sound something positive, right? If you've sat through or read through large portions like uh, uh, of the Old Testament, I think you probably have felt the same thing that I feel, which is, I don't want to hear this. 
This doesn't sound like Jesus' gentle, meek in mind who carries mild and carries sheep on his shoulders. And it doesn't sound like the one who, who says to the woman caught in adultery, go, uh, I don't condemn you, sin no more. It doesn't sound like this. So what is it that's hopeful? And why is it that we would find that this is actually a word of encouragement to people in different shoes than our own? I'd like to suggest to you that it's particularly important for us because we sometimes get so used to hearing comforting messages. We find ourselves so getting used to challenges that we find easy from God that we forget the incredible and profound despair that can exist when the challenges you see around you are so great that you are very well aware deep in your soul that you can never climb your way out of the pit that you're in. One of the best examples of what I'm talking about, I think, is when I think back, and I'm certainly no expert in it, but I think back to the history uh, in the United States of the African-American church. And you look at that history of the African-American church, and we know probably from school, and maybe some of us uh, are, are old enough to remember some of those days of the civil rights struggle and, and the prominence the African-American church played. One of the things that I find really fascinating is how often when I listen to African-American preachers, even to this day, or I, I look at historical references to sermons or ways that things are done, how much the African-American church in the United States has tended to put a stronger focus on the Old Testament than white churches have tended to do. If you look, uh, just as some examples, some historic church names, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a black uh, Baptist church. The Ebenezer Church is, is famous as a sort of epicenter of the civil rights struggle, an old church. Do you know what an Ebenezer is? Ebenezer is Hebrew, it means like memorial stone. And it comes from the book of Genesis, where Jacob is uh, his family because his brother threatened to kill him. And he falls asleep on the way, he's got nothing. I know you can relate to that there, uh, Jacob, yourself. Uh, and anyway, uh, he falls asleep and he doesn't know really what's going to happen to him. All he's got is the shirt on his back, he's got nothing to help himself in the midst of his difficulties. He falls asleep and God shows him a vision of angels ascending and descending uh, on a ladder. And he realizes that God is here and he didn't even know it. God is accompanying him and being present with him. And he's going to bring him back and he's going to keep him safe and he's going to keep, give him freedom. And so he sets up a stone and calls it an Ebenezer, uh, a memorial stone. And so that uh, inspired the African-American church to name their church the Ebenezer because a reminder of God who brings freedom to people oppressed. Or think, for example, about uh, African-American spirituals that are still well-known to many of us. Think about uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, right? That's one of the most famous uh, spirituals. And you know what that refers to? It refers to a passage in First Kings where Elijah, who preaches blistering sermons against the rich and against idolatry, he is accompanied by his apprentice, Elisha, and uh, a chariot, a fiery chariot, comes down and sweeps Elijah up into the skies. And so that spiritual is about that, that sense of God's purging justice to come and to bring rescue to those who are oppressed and broken. Or Moses go down, or go down Moses, which is about Moses coming to the Pharaoh and saying to a nation of slaves, we care about you. God has not forgotten you. He's made promises like he made to Jacob long ago, and I've come to deliver you. And what does he do? He bears God's mighty arm. He strikes down uh, Pharaoh's army. He creates uh, all of these things that are massive and incredible. And sometimes I look at this and think, man, that's a little overboard, God. But Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. This massive empire crushing down a people, treating them as if they're objects instead of real people made in God's image. And Moses comes and God bears his mighty arm and through his power, his destructive power, destroys an institution and a structure that is keeping his people from being free. 
and it is still celebrated very much, those motifs of freedom from slavery amongst the African-American church. I was uh, doing a little research here uh, in preparation for the sermon, and I came across a really great quote from Frederick Douglass. And many of you may know Frederick Douglass because he was a statesman, a man of letters uh, in the 19th century, and also an African-American who grew up as a slave. And he's reflecting back on these songs that he learned while he was out in the fields with him and his family under the whip of a slave master. This is what he says. I did not, when a slave, when a slave, understand the deep meanings of those rude and apparently incoherent songs or the spirituals they would sing. He says, I was myself within the circle so that I neither saw or heard as those without might see and hear. They told a tale which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud and long and deep, breathing the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. He listened to those things and those tales of the Old Testament sung by people who were slaves who, like the Israelites long ago, had lashes across their back because whenever they stepped out of line or sometimes even when they did the thing right, their slave owners would beat them and they realized that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. But what was there? There was hope because the Old Testament showed us the mighty power of God to save. So often, even Martin Luther King, when he would preach in the civil rights era, fast-forwarding decades, so many of his sermons were from Amos, you know, let the, the justice rain down like an ever-flowing stream, or his last sermon, I've been to the mountaintop, and talking about how Moses rose to the mountaintop, saw the promised land, even if he died before he got there. And Martin Luther King tragically died the very next day, killed by a racist man who assassinated him. So, so much of the African-American church's experience has so often been informed by the Old Testament and the blistering power of the prophet's words because it tells them that when I look around and I see how often I'm oppressed, how generation after generation after generation has been crushed, and even after the, the, the civil war in which the Emancipation Proclamation was given and I was guaranteed freedom, it soon reverted back to the old way, and whether I'm called a slave or not, I still act as if I'm a slave because I cannot vote, I cannot have a place in society. And in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King kept saying again and again and again, the job is not finished. You wrote us a promissory note and it never was fulfilled, and he kept calling upon the name of the Lord to say, deliver us. You know, we look at that experience, and why is it that words like this have been so precious is because they know the cruelty and oppression coming from above, cannot be defeated by anything except by a strong and mighty Savior who not only loves them and sympathizes with them, but also carries the great anger and bitterness they feel at a system that keeps crushing them. And a God who not only feels that anger, but also unveils his power, a frightening power, to shake them uh, institutions to the foundation until they lie in rubble and a new institution free of these things can be built. And we look at that and we might say to ourselves, that may be true for decades ago, or maybe I don't understand, I haven't been in the African-American experience, and that's certainly true for me. But you know, it's interesting when I look around at the world today, how often uh, the reality of it is that these words which are so relevant to the oppressed today simply don't get spoken. Uh, and there are a lot of people oppressed in similar ways. Think about uh, my first posting when I was a priest, that was almost 20 years ago, was in Cornwall. And if you know much about Cornwall as a city of about 50,000 people south of us, Cornwall has a problem of multi-generational poverty and dysfunction and, and drug use, poor health outcomes. 
And one of the things that shocked me when I was there, it wasn't just that I saw sometimes uh, teenagers with babies. It's how often I would meet women in their 40s who wouldn't just be grandmas, they'd be great-grandmas. That's four generations in which uh, a baby brings another baby into the world, doesn't finish high school, never sees a stable household, never has a, a, a solid, good, respectful marriage to look up to and model themselves after. Um, boys who you know, spend their days in foolishness, they've never had a, a strong, virtuous father to, to, to guide them on their way. What do they live in? It's not despair that there's no hope. I've got no education. I've got no opportunities. I've got nothing. What do I do except shake my fist to the heavens and wish something were different? I think of natives in Attawapa scatter and the many reservations where they've been promised by generation after generation of Canadian government officials, we'll fix things. We're finally going to take seriously your concerns, and yet they still drink their water and get sick. How often it is we find as we look around the world, those who are oppressed, who need to hear this message, aren't hearing it. One of the saddest realities about our church in its current space is this, that it's not just that our numbers have declined across mainline denominations, Anglicans, Roman Catholics, the churches that used to be sort of central to our society. These are churches that still do much for the poor, but the problem is they used to be churches of the poor, and they aren't anymore. If you look across our nation a hundred years ago, you'd find plenty of poor people in Catholic churches, plenty of poor people in Anglican churches. You look around our nation today, and both of our churches have become largely middle class. Our middle class got nothing against middle class people, but what is it that we're not telling people who are broken and crushed and have no power to help themselves? Are we being clear enough with strong words and saying, I know that what you face is so crushing, so powerful, so strong, you need something more than Jesus loves you, Jesus gentle, meek, and mild. What you need is Jesus is a mighty Savior who has come to break the bonds of your oppression and make you free in a way that no one else can. It is so important for us to hear this for those people, but it's important for us to hear it for ourselves because even if we're not in that, think about times where you can honestly say to yourself, I am in a personal hell. My beloved spouse has a cancer diagnosis. My mother uh, that I've loved and, and has been nurtured by now is in the grip of dementia and doesn't even remember my name. These are prisons that people are in even today amongst comfortable middle-class places. And what is it we call upon? We call upon a Lord who says, even the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. When you're in a personal hell, you need a God who will break down those, those monstrous gates and to set the captives free. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do. And it's hard, of course, that's what Jesus does at the cross. Wrestles with sin, wrestles with human ugliness, wrestles with death, and beats them down under his feet and says, you too will face these things, but not alone. You have a mighty Savior who came to deliver you from them. Now that's the challenging thing, the most challenging. Here is a little dial back the challenge a bit and bring up the hope a little bit. What I mean by that is to say that if we listen to the language of Jeremiah, what God is speaking about is not just his power to crush institutions of oppression and those who suppress the poor and the brokenhearted. He also is talking about something even deeper. That God who shakes things to its foundations is also a God who can rebuild on those foundations and make something glorious. So listen to the challenging words here that I read a few moments ago. I'll read them again. Verse 23. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, 
and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole hand shall be a desolation. Yet I will not make a full end. Where's the hope? Those of you who are familiar with the Bible and have heard it many times may have recognized as you listen to those words that there's a strange resemblance to some words we heard earlier in the Bible. The world is formed or is now back to void. The land is now flattened. There's no light in the skies. There's no life on the earth. There is darkness and bleakness. Listen to these first words when we go back to the beginning. The first book of the Bible, Genesis. The first chapter of Genesis and the first verse. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 6, God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of waters, and let it separate waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters above the dome from the waters below the dome. Verse 9, let the waters under the sky be gathered again into one place and let the dry land appear. Then verse 11, God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees of every kind, and the earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons for days and years. God is speaking in Jeremiah about deconstructing creation and going back to the beginning. Life around, there won't be life. Formation will be unformed. You will be left back in a time, at least metaphorically, a time that is much like the first primordial days, where God hovers over the, the waters and he looks out and sees formlessness, chaos, void, and what does he do? He takes the chaos and the void and out of it creates order. A dark sky, he creates light. Uh, covered by the seas, God creates the mountains. Nothing, barren, God creates vegetation and birds. And in the crowning achievement, what do we find? We find that God creates human beings in his own image and tells these human beings to go till the earth and be fruitful and be stewards of it. Jeremiah's challenge is that he's going to shake those foundations very, very hard. But God is saying, look at what I always do. I am the God who from the very beginning is a God who creates order out of chaos and I am a God who from the very beginning has been concerned with redeeming those trapped in chaos because from the very beginning I looked at the chaos of the world and I made something good out of it. Here is a promise Jeremiah, uh, God makes through Jeremiah and that promise is to say, I'm going to shake the foundations of Israel. I've been spoken for generation after generation about how your judges take bribes, about how it is you run after idols, how it is you sacrifice your children in the fire to these bloodthirsty gods. I've been talking to you about how you start wars and, and kill off your young men, how you enslave your young women, how you hate the foreigner and you don't do well by them, how the poor are oppressed, how the landowners overtax. I've told you all of these things and you haven't listened and this society needs to be shaken to its foundations, but here's my promise, I will not make an end. I will rebuild. And I will rebuild because I am the God who takes order out of chaos. And I am the God who brings freedom out of slavery and a God who brings light out of darkness. And of course, God brings Israel back. As painful as it all was, Israel comes back, restores Jerusalem, builds up the temple, and ultimately brings forth Jesus. Jesus, who is the visible image of the invisible God, God himself shows us the crushing power of sin and death are no match for God's recreative power to bring forth new life. It's not a mistake or an accident that the first time Jesus is seen by Mary Magdalene, she thinks he's a gardener. 
Why? Because he's restored the earth, and he is the one who has restored something new and great, just like God did at the beginning. So what do we get out of this? I don't get out of this that ignore the harshness and difficulty of difficult language. Instead, I'd say, let it wash over you. Let it offend you. Let it scare you a little bit. But remember, as best as you can, to put yourself in the shoes of a person who needs to hear that it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who desperately needs to know that the God we serve is mighty in power and mighty to save. And a God who makes tyrants afraid. But also remember this. Remember that whenever God shakes our foundations and squishes and does things we don't want him to do and the things we love and want to hold on to keep slipping through our hands, that God has made a promise, and it may not be fully realized in this life, but he's made a promise that when God breaks down, he builds up something even greater. Look at this world we live in. For all of its pains and all of its sorrows, who can deny the beauty that shines through in a moment of sunshine or in the laugh of a child or in the good ways that sometimes neighbors can treat themselves and treat each other even in the midst of difficult times? The Lord never leaves himself without a witness. And the Lord is calling on us in difficult times when the institutions and the things we rely on are shaken. Remember the rock you can really rely on, that is Jesus Christ. And remember that I am a creative God who will rebuild anything that I tear down, but rebuild it in a way that will last and that is good and that is right.